welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena and today our guest is a barrister and entrepreneur who founded a property and tech investment firm that aims to provide housing to low-income tenants. He has also started an initiative called Millionaire Mentor, where he supports young people from disadvantaged backgrounds to get into business. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Roy Legister to the podcast. Welcome, Roy. Hi, how are you doing? It's lovely to have you on the podcast today. I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? Not too bad at all. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so just to start us off, I would love to hear about your journey and your path to to now being the founder of Convivia and, and also having started Millionaire Mentor. What was that journey like? Sure. I mean, you know, the journey has been quite, um, I say eventful. I've done quite a few things, you know, in my life, in my past for my, I'm going to say my relatively few years, I'm actually cracking on a bit now. So it's not quite as few as I'd like to think, but yeah, I've, I've pivoted on a number of occasions. I started off as a solicitor, set up my own law firm when I was uh, 24 years old, employed a few friends and family members and trained them up and so on and so forth. A few years after that, went to the bar, became a barrister. I never wanted to be a solicitor actually. So um, I, I sort of decided, you know, enough's enough now, handed the firm to my sister who I trained. And then I went and became a barrister, did that for a number of years. And then, you know, ironically, funnily, enough because of all the strikes that everyone's hearing about at the moment the barristers striking because of low fees that's been the way for uh god knows how many years and i decide i'm the sort of person i'm not going to sort of sit around and complain about stuff i'm not going to be you know on the picket line and striking waiting for whitehall to uh, put their hands in their pocket i'll just take control and decide to go and make some money myself so i thought let me go and make some money come back to the bar and do the types of cases i wanted to do because what i found myself doing were sort of white collar crime regulatory type cases when the reality was i went to the bar to do blood and gut stuff. You know, I did murders you know, pretty much back to back for God knows how many years. And that's the sort of stuff I wanted to do, representing the ordinary man on the street. But all of a sudden, I found myself doing white collar crime. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong, it's enjoyable, but that's not the reason I reason I came to the bar. So I thought, let me go away, make some money, then come back and then I can do the cases I really wanted to do. So I went away, got involved in a property group, went out, raised 50 million quid, um, gave myself six months to raise this money, did it in four months in a sector which I knew nothing about. Was involved in that for a while. Then I moved away from that, set up my own company, Convivia, which is effectively doing the same thing. I'd stumbled across the public housing uh, sector and realized that actually I could make an impact here, make a big difference to the lives of so many people, as opposed to the one person that I was usually representing, um, you know, in the courtroom. So it was, it was, it was a good way of doing that. Also, it was a good business, commercially strong business. And I saw the opportunity here to build something and try and be an example, really, and just sort of show people that you can actually, you know, accumulate, you know, wealth, have a good life by just doing the right things. I think there's so many young people out there think that you need to be a shark to go out there and make money. And and I'm just trying to say, well, actually, you don't have to, you can do the right things for the right reasons and still do well. I've got that that saying that you can't sprinkle the perfume of happiness on other people without getting a few drops in yourself. And I suppose that just epitomizes it really, just trying to go out there and do the right thing. When I got into the sector, I'm realizing, hold on a minute, the public housing model doesn't work. You know, we've got a shortage of housing. And in the UK in 2022, as far as I'm concerned, that's a failure of imagination when you've got people who are living on a poverty line, people who are living in accommodation, which is substandard. And I thought, you know what, we can do this and we can do it better. So came up with a model which meant that we could deliver very high quality, sexy homes 
So unfortunately, it doesn't attract, I don't think, the best and the brightest, the sharpest, the most creative. And I thought then the reality is if I can get into it and try and make it a much better sector, it can be an example, I suppose, to others to show that you can actually do this in a different way. Public housing typically just equates to shelter, nothing more than shelter, you know, and the associations and the local authority think they're doing a great job because they put a roof over somebody's head. You know, whippy do, well done. You know, the way I look at it, we can do a bit better than that. And let's just try and make it a bit more inspiring, a bit more motivating. And I don't build public sector homes, you know, even if I'm in the sector, I consider myself to build luxury homes and I give it to the public sector, which is slightly different. So that was that journey. Um, Millionaire Mentor sort of came about during that process as well. With Millionaire Mentor, what I wanted to do was quite similar again. And it was a case of trying to make sure that young people who have come from impoverished backgrounds recognize that their upbringing and their background is a reason why they should do well, not a reason why they shouldn't. But society tells them, do you know what? You're not going to amount to anything. And I'm saying, hold on a minute, because you've come from your background, you should, could, if you had the opportunity and the support do far better than those who come from a privileged background because you've got that hustle muscle. You've got that special something about you. And that's what's often ignored. And I'm just trying to demonstrate to the wider world, give these guys and girls a chance and you'll realize that we've got a forgotten sector, you know, a forgotten demographic who could be contributing and making this world a better place. But because they're ignored, not given the chance, they're cast off to the side. And I'm saying these are the diamonds in the rough, really. So that's what Millionaire Mentor was all about. And that sounds really great and really amazing. Um, You grew up in West London. Was there anything about your experiences growing up that has made you passionate about this cause and, and really, you know, helping disadvantaged people? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, I'm... I don't consider myself to come from a disadvantaged background. My parents separated when I was a, a baby, a toddler. I was raised by my mother, me and my sister. And, you know, we didn't want for anything. That's the reality. But we lived in, you know, um, public housing. I went to a state school and so on and so forth. And what I've just realized is that coming from that background, I wasn't disadvantaged. If I listen to all the noise out there, people telling me what I should be and who I should have become, I probably would have met their expectations. The reality was when I was a 12-year-old, I came across, stumbled across, actually self-help books and tapes and I listened to books and tapes and always did ever since you know the age of 12 you know and I wrote this book didn't get the memo that's not a plug for it but it's literally me saying that I didn't get the memo telling me that I couldn't do or couldn't become so because I was almost positively brainwashed with all this stuff from a very young age I just believed the tapes that's the reality I believed what I was listening to and it manifested itself in that I just went on and did whatever I wanted to do and having that my background I realized it was a positive it was a skill. I mean, it was a skill that I recognized very early on, actually, in the courtroom, for example. It's an intimidating place if you've come from the sort of background that I've come from. You're surrounded by those who have got very polished accents. You know, pr- the pronunciation is perfect. And here I am speaking like me, looking around, not seeing too many people like me and thinking, well, I don't really belong here. And that's notwithstanding everything that I had taught myself from my books and tapes and so on. I was still thinking, I don't deserve to be here. And then as time went on, I listened to a lot of these barristers who speaking, you know, beautifully well. And I'm thinking, he's talking a load of old nonsense, actually. And then I start to realize that he is no better than me. He just presents it very well. That sort of put a spring in my step. 
and made me think, well, hold on, he hasn't got anything I haven't got. And then I realized, hold on, I mean, I've actually got a bit more than he's got because I could cross-examine the, the common man on the street perfectly well, whereas he couldn't because I can relate to him. I can relate to a jury, you know, and I would kick off my jury speeches by making my Shepherd's Bush reference, my, you know, born and bred in Shepherd's Bush. I'd say, you know, you're not going to hear any polished pronunciation from me. You're not going to get any, you know, perfect elocution. What you will get from me is Shepherd's Bush born and bred upbringing reality. Let's go. And immediately I would connect with a jury and realize I had the ability because of my background to compete with somebody who I thought was better than me and go on and beat him. And I'm just trying to let the kids realize that it's your superpower. I don't care where you've come from. Society will keep on telling these kids, you can't, you shouldn't, you couldn't, you won't. It's all nonsense. It's all made believe, right? And the kids start to believe it. You know, no one rises to low expectations. And it's just trying to pattern interrupt and let kids realize, don't just listen to me, watch me. I've done it. Nothing special about me at all. And I mean that, you know, it's not me just trying to be humble. I spent half my class, my time in school outside the classroom. I was just as disruptive as anyone else. You know, I was, I was a nice kid, but I, I played up. I didn't really enjoy school. I followed a process. I got my head down. I believed in myself. I took chances. I've taken chances time and time again. And you end up here. But society will keep telling these kids they can't, they won't. The parents will be telling them they can't. They shouldn't. The problem is, it's all very subtle. If you look at the inner cities, if you walk into a youth club, what will you see on the walls to try and inspire these kids? One, it's music and sport. This is what you're good at. This is what you can do. Or, you know, come to a business course and we'll teach you how to write a CV so you can get a job. So what you're telling these kids are, you're good for music, sport, or working for somebody else. That becomes their reality. If that's all they see around them and all their parents are telling them is, you know, why don't you go and, you know, write your CV or I know someone who can give you a job. You're telling these kids that's all you can become. I'm saying, no, 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 no. Why don't you have in those same youth centers your PhD course up on the wall? Medicine, law, start your own business. Don't go and work in a coffee shop, own a coffee shop. Automatically, you're now telling them this is who you could and should become. And that's where I'm trying to interrupt these patterns because we keep dumbing these kids down. And it's no surprise or wonder that they rise to this very low level. That's what Millionaire Mentor is all about. It's incredibly interesting kind of hearing that insight. I just want to touch on um, something that you said earlier about how actually being from a disadvantaged background, especially in the business world, can actually be a superpower and, and actually, you know, people from disadvantaged backgrounds tend to have that sort of hustle mentality. I'm just wondering if there's anything else or if there's anything quite specific about people and young people in particular who who come from disadvantaged backgrounds that make them such great entrepreneurs. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Look, you think of anybody that you know in your immediate network who's gone through tough times, who's really struggled. I like to, in order to make a point, let me exaggerate a point. You take a street homeless individual, a street beggar. He says, you know, excuse me, ma'am, have you got, can you give me a pound, please? Get lost. Next person. Hi, sir. Can I have a pound, please? Get lost. You know what I mean? Time and time again, he comes back time and time and time and time and time again. That's all you need. <laughs> you don't need to have your PhD. You don't need to have your, your master's. You don't need to have, you know, degrees. You just need resolve. A single mother raising a number of kids, making ends meet, you know, tin of baked beans and a couple of eggs. She needs to make this stretch. That's resourcefulness. That's all you need. <laughs> they can't teach you this in the, in the second year of your degree course. 
you know, this is why I say those from disadvantaged background have got the skills, the life skills, and life skills translate perfectly well to business if you believe in yourself. What's unfortunate is they won't get the opportunity to demonstrate to the wider world that they can do it. You know, the big law firms aren't going to come knocking down at, you know, the Peabody estate on the top floor to see if anyone here fancies a job. But that's perhaps where they should be looking because in there, you're going to find individuals who have got that hustle muscle, that drive, that desire to succeed, that resourcefulness. Instead, we go to the Ivy League universities, you know, find the Redbrick universities and we'll cherry pick the brightest. That doesn't always translate to best. And it doesn't mean to say those from disadvantaged backgrounds aren't bright. They're just never going to get seen. You're never going to be talent spotted. You know, the scouts aren't going to go and look there. This is why I say from those from disadvantaged backgrounds, it, it, I can't put my finger on any one thing because there's so many traits that they have just to survive, just to live. That if it were, you know, translated into the business world, they'll fly. Mm-hmm. And resilience is like something that really does come up in business so much, as well as, you know, like you mentioned, the ability to to deal with adversity, because that is something naturally that arises when somebody starts their own business. But even if you have all of those skills, which you learn from, you know, the various experiences you have being from a disadvantaged background, there still seems to be specific barriers that exist within society that stop young people from progressing. What needs to change to be able to get more young people into positions of power and get more young people who, who from those backgrounds into business? You know, I think, you know, millionaire mentor programs like that will be helpful because what it does is it makes people stop and think, oh, hold on a minute, we're missing something here. You know, there's that saying, it's easy to find the light switch once the light's already turned on. If we can turn the lights on through Millionaire Mentor, others can find the switch and do the same. But it's difficult to be that first person to say, hold on, these are where these individuals are. Convivia is a prop tech company, part of the tech being developed now. And one of the functions is to enable those individuals from disadvantaged backgrounds who have got that special something about them to be visible because it's a lack of visibility. Of course, there are barriers to entry, but they're very subtle. It's the fact that we don't go looking in the right places or we convince ourselves that there's nothing there to find. It's happened. It's over the years. You know, you get the the big law firms were going into the sort of city schools, state schools and so on, trying to encourage these individuals. And that's the starting point. And that's all good and well. But the problem with that type of thing is unless you have the messenger looking like the messenger, you know, the person who's receiving the message, they need to be able to relate to the messenger. Otherwise, they think, you know, it's not for me. This isn't for me. Look at him. He's different. He talks differently. He walks differently. He's come from a different background. Of course, he's there. He's not like me. And that's why I make the point of saying, I'm just like you. I'm just a regular guy from Shepherd's Bush who had a go and did nothing special about me. I didn't have it easy. Don't get me wrong. But life isn't easy. Business isn't easy. You know, and it's just trying to educate these young people and more mature individuals from the community that you have everything it takes. But banks need to take a look at the situation. You know, a big problem for people trying to start a business is they've got no collateral, right? If you're from a disadvantaged background, of course you have no collateral. And similarly, in the legal profession, when you have those from disadvantaged backgrounds putting an application into chambers, they haven't got much work experience. They don't have, they can't demonstrate they've done this, that, and the other. And the chances are they probably couldn't afford to do this, that, the other. You think they can go for six weeks during the holidays, go and work in pro bono in the U.S.? They can't do that. They need to work for themselves to help put food on the table. They're up against individuals who come from more privileged background who have done all that. They've gone to the USA for two months at a time doing pro bono. So 
the, the barriers to entry are very subtle and it translates to the business community. If the banks aren't giving me a loan, how can I start my business? Who's going to back me? No one's going to back me. And this is why Millionaire Mentor is so important to say into the banks, let's take a chance. Let's take a chance here. What makes you think they haven't got it? You should be advancing the money because I'm going to prove to you they have got it because of that hustle muscle. So it's it's a paradigm shift. I don't think it's any one program. As I said, it takes uh, that first flea to jump out the jar and others will follow, right? And if we can jump out and set the example and show that this can be done, hopefully, hopefully others will follow. And if they don't, mark my words, I will start embarrassing the big corporations if they don't start taking a look and recognizing talent and ability from the disadvantaged backgrounds because it exists in an abundance. Yeah, completely. And and one thing I, I picked up on there is is sort of this idea that there are quite nuanced barriers that exist in society. And one thing that's come up um, in, you know, a previous podcast is it's almost like a catch-22 situation where there needs to be role models for people from all kinds of backgrounds to, to be able to aspire and, and look up to. But if those just don't even exist, if those people don't exist in the first place in these positions of power, it's almost this kind of cycle that's that's quite difficult to, to break free from. I'm wondering what your perspective on that is and is there a way to get people from more diverse backgrounds into these positions of power and into these these business roles you know many companies pay lip service to this particular area many do some i think are committed but don't know how and then there are some that just aren't interested you know so it's i think we've got a long way to go i certainly improving for sure but we've got a long way to go what i would say is is i'm trying to do it from the bottom up as opposed from the top down so i'm not trying to get to the top and make the changes i'm trying to help those at the bottom force their way through because the problem of doing it the other way I have to say to my young people, well, let's hopefully wait until somebody's at the top of, of the sector who can help you. What if they don't turn up? You know, I, that's never the way I've lived my life, right? So I'm saying to these kids, it doesn't matter who's at the top. It doesn't matter what they look like, what color and so on and so forth. It's down to you. You make the change. You push through. You don't take no for an answer and you keep pushing. You keep pushing because you're in control of you. You can't control what society has in store for you. You can't control what the weather's going to be like. When it rains, you put up an umbrella. We need to adjust and dance with life, right? And that's effectively the the message I'm giving to these young people. It's not an easy thing to do, but life's not easy. It's not easy to push through, but it's equally not easy when you haven't pushed through because the life that you're left with isn't great either. So you may as well do the pushing and get the benefit of it. And it's just letting them realize that there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is like, because without the mentors telling them that or demonstrating it to them, it's hard for them to want to do it. Instead, you'll then have the mentors from the wrong spaces. You know, you'll have the drug dealers, the street hustlers who are the magnet for these young people as their way out. And, and you know, when I'm competing with these, because that's the reality, I'm competing with the individual. I need to say to these young people, you can go that way. Of course you can. And you can make money. You can come this way. It's easier to make money this way, actually, because you just need to follow a simple set of principles. You know, I'm a big believer that the messenger is the message. There's no point me talking left and then walking right. I need to be the message through the way I act, through the way I've lived and through the way I live my life. Taking on challenge on a daily basis, trying to do things that have never been done before, because that is the biggest message to the young people who are watching. They watch, they don't listen. They've heard it all their lives. Parents, Teachers, yes, you can. Yes, you can in many respects. And then, you know, the kids are sitting there confused thinking, well, mom, if it was that easy, why are you doing free cleaning jobs? You know, miss, if it was that easy for me to go and be top economist, why are you teaching? Do you know what I mean? So they need to hear it from people who are doing it 
Or if it's not from people who are doing it, they need to have that self-belief that they can do it themselves. So that's why I talk about and distinguish between pushing them forwards or waiting for somebody to pull them up, pushing them forwards. They can take control of their destiny. At the same time, I need to try and be a message as best I can, as best example I possibly can be. So it gives them hope and confidence that they feel that they can one day do this too, because I'm just a normal guy from Shepherd's Bush. You mentioned uh, just then the power of mentoring and, and enabling and empowering young people so that it really comes from sort of like the bottom up rather than kind of top down and the importance and power in, in that. And you have done your own mentoring yourself as well, where you teach young people about the importance of kind of having a positive mindset and even why procrastinating and, and that kind of thing can be really sort of debilitating. Um why is procrastinating so prominent amongst young people in general, but also what is the importance of, of having a positive mindset? Okay, so I suppose there's a couple of questions here, but procrastination, I think why people procrastinate, there's, there's a few reasons for it. And it's not just young people, it's right the way through, right? I talked about didn't get the memo of the book. The memo teaches us don't do things until everything's perfect. Wait for it to be right. It's, it's been ingrained in us since kids. You know, your homework's not right. No, put it back. You're, you haven't done every, all your research for your homework. You know, don't submit your homework. And then when we start, you know, we go into work in life. You need to get everything right. You don't want to submit your report until it's all done perfectly. That immediately brings about the culture of fear. You know, we can't afford to get it wrong. That's completely the wrong mindset. As far as I'm concerned, if you want to push forward and become a massive success, I think in order to be massively successful, you need to push when you can, where you are with what you've got. You know, I wrote this book, didn't get the memo in 30 days. Why did I write it in 30 days? Just to prove that I could. It's not a little short book, by the way. It's what, 330 pages, 30 days. And I held down a job, kept a family, exercised every morning at five o'clock, did all the other stuff. I was just doing it to prove that you can do it. Why do I make that point? If I ask you how long does it take to write a book, you'll tell me, I don't know, six months, nine months, a year, whatever, because that's what society tells us. But it's not real. It's all made up. Society told us that. That doesn't have to become my reality. So by writing the book in 30 days, that's what I was capable of. I didn't procrastinate to write the book. I decided I was going to write the book on the 28th of December, my birthday. I started writing it a week later on the 5th of January. No ghostwriter, no lawyers, no publishers, no this, no that, no the other. The moment I started to get all these guys involved, it would be, well, we can't have a meeting for another three weeks and we can't do this for another two weeks. Now it takes a month to, it builds in that procrastination. And then now I'm thinking, you know, I can't start because I need to have all these things done. Book's not written six months. By six time six months come, the idea's gone. So the procrastination is just natural in the way we live we always want to get everything perfect. We want to get everything right. And you see it most where people are very much wedded to doing something and they want to put their very best effort out there. They will wait till it's perfect. Unfortunately, it's never perfect. My view is there's, there's other ways of doing this. Get out what you can right now. It may not be brilliant, but it's done. And likewise, you know, I say my book may not be the best book out there, but it's certainly better than a book I never wrote. You know, I talk about in the book where my MD was saying to me, you know, I really want to start exercise. I want to start training. And I was just so fed up with this. One day I said to him, okay, let's go on and let's do it now. Then. He says, what do you mean? I said, do it now. Get on the floor now. In his suit, in his shoes, get on the floor right now. Start now. That's how you start a miracle. Just get on with it. Procrastination will kill your dreams. It will kill your success. It will kill your goals. Get on with it. There's something you're thinking of doing right now. And you'll be mulling it over, mulling it over, mulling it over. It's probably never going to happen, right? Start today. Principles of success. My God, I mean, there's there's so many. 
you know, it depends on how you want to distill it. I think that I've got 12 chapters or 13 chapters in the book. I'm a bit vague on this because I wrote it very quickly, right? So for example, self-belief, aspiration versus desperation, the way you treat your goals. I think you treat a desperational goal. The doctor says to you, if you eat one more burger, you're going to drop dead tonight. I bet you don't need to have somebody come around with a journal to tell you the benefits of why you don't, you shouldn't eat that burger, right? You're frightened now. So desperation will make you stick to your goals in that type of scenario. Aspirational goals, however, the type of goals we make on New Year's Eve, that's different because nobody is going to force you to do what you need to do, right? So it'll just tail off. But if you could treat your aspirational goals the same way you treat your desperational goals, you start a miracle. It's simple stuff. Self-belief obviously speaks for itself. If you believe you can do something, you'll go after it in a different way and manner than you would if you don't believe. I would say you know, how you view what you do determines how you do what you do. In the book, I talk about imagine waking up in a coma and you didn't know who you were. Total loss of memory. And I came to your bedside. I said, Serena, champ, how are you doing? And you looked at me and I said, champ, you know, you, it's unfortunate you fell down and hit your head in the championships, the dancing championships of 2021, you know, but you were amazing. You know, we thought you were going to do it again. Champion 19, 20, 21. And here you were about to go for it again. You fell over. If everyone came in and greeted you as Serena, champ, 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 can't wait to see you on the dance floor. Regardless of whether you believed you can dance or not, the next time you see a dance floor, you're going to walk up to it with some confidence and you're going to throw some moves because we've told you who you are. And that's going to impact how you go after what you're doing. And this is the subtlety of talking to young people and self-belief. So, so that's self-belief. There's resolve we've talked about. There's adversity. I think many of us go through business and life thinking that adversity is a bad thing, right? Of course, no one wants it, but that's what shapes you. That's what really gets you going, right? When you're going after your goals, you're going to suffer adversity. New Year's Eve, you're clinking glasses. I'm going to run that marathon and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, the first day you're due to go out, it's chucking it down with rain. There's no fanfare there. There's no you know, marching band waiting to greet you on day one of your goal. It's just you and you and your trainers and the rain. And you look at it and think, not for me. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, how do you get over that? And the reason I mention that is that when you're setting your goal, you have to realize adversity is part of the process. Many people think it's going to be a bed of roses. They're in cloud cuckoo land. That's not real. If you know adversity is coming, if you know day one is probably going to be chucking it down hellstones, but notwithstanding that, I'm still motivated and you're clinking your glasses, knowing what you're going to go into, you won't be shocked or surprised. And the beautiful thing about it is when it gets tough for you, that means it's got, it gets tough for everybody else. On the other side of that is where the magic happens. Most people bail just before the magic starts. When adversity comes, now you're onto something. Push through that. It's on the other side of that is where the magic is. That was definitely a, a really great answer. And and one thing I, I pick up on is the fact that you definitely do have a can-do attitude. And, you know, an important thing in success is to approach adversity, not necessarily with fear, but but with a positive mindset and kind of an open mindset. Would you say that's that's correct? Yes and no. Absolutely right. You know, that's certainly how I'll present. But what I do is I try and demonstrate my frailties too. I'm as frightened as the next person. I was as frightened as the next person when I set my law firm up. I'm as frightened as the next person when I left a six-figure salary to go and work for free, you know, with a big tax bill. I'm as frightened as the next guy. I'm as frightened as the next guy when I left that role to go and set up Convivia. You know, I'm as frightened as the next guy when I'm going out to try and make hundreds of millions. I'm frightened here right now thinking, what if I lose it all? You know, what if I'm exposed as a fake? You know, there's always fear. I'm not unique in that way. I just deal with it differently. You know, there's a book, it's called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Deborah Jeffers. And that's exactly what I do. I feel that fear just like the next guy. 
but I don't let it paralyze me. I go into autopilot and still crack on anyway. And that's what gets me through. When the adversity comes, I want to curl up in the corner and call my mummy and hug her too. You know, I do 100%. But I know this is where the magic is. I know after night comes day. So I know I just need to hang in there until daylight comes. I know these things, but it doesn't mean I'm not frightened and scared and, you know, when I lick my wounds. It's like being on a roller coaster when you're going through adverse, adversity, right? When you're on it, you're like, get me off, get me off, get me off screaming. And when I get off, I think, look, look back and think, how oh, would I mind doing that again? You know, but when you're in it, it's horrible. It's horrible for me too. So, I, you know, I, there's no, nothing special. I'm not some superhero. I have to force myself to believe you can do this. You can do this. I'm always talking to myself. I'm like a madman walking around my house. You know, I'm always talking to myself. You know, you can do this. You can do this. Come on. Don't be silly. Come on. Don't be silly. You can do this. I think the difference between me and many others is they don't have the mechanism and the tools to combat the negative that they're feeling. This whole success failure thing is very much about territory. The moment you stop pursuing the positive the negative takes over. Let me give an example. The moment you stop cutting the grass in your garden and tending to your garden, the weeds take over. The moment you stop eating well and exercising, obesity takes over. The moment you stop studying and pushing to try and get better grades, bad grades take over. So you're always fighting the resistance of the negative and you cannot stop thinking it's going to be okay because the treadmill is moving all the time. So you need to walk just to keep level. And if you really want to move forward, you need to start sprinting. And that is life. You know, that's how I see it anyway. And I'm, I'm fighting every day. But what I can do is force myself every day. Five o'clock in the morning this morning. Do you think I wanted to get up at five o'clock in the morning? There are so many things I'd rather do at 5 a.m. I hate waking up at 5 a.m. in the morning. Positively hate. And then doing a grueling workout. I have to talk to myself every morning. Come on, Roy, come on. Swing your legs around, come on, swing your legs. And I'll lie in bed 20 minutes sometimes, half an hour sometimes, before I finally get myself to get my trainers on. But this is me using the tools, knowing I have to, have to keep pushing for the positive. Otherwise, the negative takes over. If I don't exercise today, guess what happens tomorrow? Well, you didn't exercise yesterday. Do you know what? It's Thursday. You're near the end of the week. We start next week. Come Monday, guess what's going to happen? Same again. Well, you know, you're now out of it for a week. It's near the end of the month. You know what? It's summer. It's holiday time. And there's always be a reason. The weeds will take over the garden. You won't even recognize it when you look back. That's why I have the tools that I know I cannot stop, especially with me. I'm naturally lazy. I wouldn't say I'm naturally negative, but there are so many negative traits of my character that I have to fight them and combat them on a daily basis. In business, I have to fight on a daily basis to keep on top of stuff. Otherwise, the weeds take the garden. Do you think that ability to be able to have that get up and go attitude and really combat kind of any negative characteristics that you might have, which arguably is a very important thing in business and, and for an entrepreneur, do you think that's something that you're born with or can that be learned? That's a good question. Um, I think some are more suited to entrepreneurialism than others. Can anyone be an entrepreneur? Theoretically, yes. However, I don't think so because I think, you know, some people are just naturally fearful. Some people just don't like risk. You may be a good business person, but you're not an entrepreneur as far as I'm concerned. I think entrepreneurialism, it has that element of risk. It has that element of, of pushing forward. Um, so can anyone be an entrepreneur? No, I don't think so. I think if they, if they really got on top of their mind mastery, yes, but it takes I was going to say a special kind of individual, a crazy kind of individual. If you ask anyone in my office, they'll tell you I'm not normal. 
<laughs> uh, and that's not a positive, by the way. That's you know, I, I, I know I'm not normal. My, my, my wife, I, I sympathise with a poor woman, you know, because I'm not normal. But I think it takes a kind of crazy individual who has a disregard for convention, a disregard for reality in many respects of the way that things should be done. An entrepreneur says, "I don't care how it should be done. I'm doing it my way." That stubbornness. Uh, we're dreamers, you know. Many entrepreneurs, we're dreamers. And don't get me wrong, I've not always got it right. You know, there's been things that have fallen through the gaps, you know, time and time again. And that's something that entrepreneurs go through. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned this passion that you have. And really that, that passion is, is something that's very altruistic. There are plenty of, of business people that do definitely give back to society in some way, but there are also plenty of business people that don't. What is the power in being altruistic and, and giving back as a successful business person? I've always had this dream goal that I would spend the first half of my life sort of making as much wealth as I possibly can and the second half of it giving it away. And what I want to do is set up academies of excellence for disadvantaged individuals around the world where I will put my own money and back them in their business dreams and goals and build a fund effectively like for the disadvantaged and make even more money again, by letting these guys and girls make money and hopefully put something in train whereby they will then reach down and pull up others. That's my reason for being. So when you've got that sort of pull, I don't have to force myself to find solutions whenever there's a problem encountered in the business, because I know that the business is my tool to get me what I want. So it just keeps me going, keeps me going. It's always pulling me through. And the pull of helping others, I think, is a bigger pull and the pull of trying to get reward for yourself. Think about it, you know, after you made a few million, I mean, what bigger pull is there? You've got everything you need, but I can never make enough money to do what I want to do. If I made 20 billion, that's not enough. So I will always keep going because I know I need this in order to do what I want to do. You know, where those, you know, philanthropists and so on and so forth, even though they may not have said it at the time, when they're building their businesses, there was a bigger pull, which was far bigger than the money. The money is neither here nor there. Don't get me wrong, I love money but it's the pull of helping others. And again, that just sounds so wishy-washy. But what I think I've focused on, and I'd like to think starting to master, is the ability to accumulate wealth for myself whilst making the world better for others. It's a nice place to be. I don't want to make it at the expense of others. I really do want to make it at the service of others, but it just leaves that legacy. And it's generational wealth, not for me only, but for the guys and girls who work with me in Convivia. It's for everybody. It's not just me that benefits. But if I can set up my academy, how many families can be impacted and changed as a result of that? Because my fund has decided to give these guys a chance. And it's not a gamble. This is well-informed risk profiling. I know these guys and girls are more likely to succeed because of where they've come from. And it's sending out a message to the world. You're missing a trick here. Mm -hmm. So would you say that the positive and potentially appealing aspect of being more altruistic in business is really the legacy that you'll leave, not just through kind of the reputation that a business person might build, but through the positive change that you can you can make in people's lives. No, no absolutely. You know, I think so. Any business that does well is solving problems, right? They're solving a problem, be it in in sort of entertainment, it's solving a problem in, you know, in housing in our case, it may be solving a problem in motoring, whatever it is, you're solving a problem. So if you can do that and impact lives in a way that it's making a difference, the business is going to grow. 
why wouldn't it grow? Okay, you know, so as a starting point, I think you're going to be better off anyway. Um, to leave that legacy, and don't get me wrong, will Convivia be around for a long time? I don't know how long it will be. Will it be, a, you know, generational? I don't know. Someone else might think, hold on a minute, seeing what Legister's doing over there at Convivia, we can do it better. So be it. But at least the world is a better place, right? You know, and Elon Musk's doing what he's doing. Now look at the amount of electric cars in it. Will he be the biggest, the best? Probably not. You know, he'll, he, every chance that he'll be overtaken by some of the big boys in due course, I don't think he'll care because he's done his bit. And his bit was, let's send out a message. There's a better way. There's a different way to do this. His legacy is there forever. So it may not be as a result of my business directly that's making a difference to others, but other people may follow when they realize that the way I'm doing it, I'm onto something. You know, I was asked a question by a, a, a podcaster the other day, you know, am I making a difference or the difference? Because I was a bit loose with my, uh, with, my, with, my, with my language. And I said, yeah, I was making a difference. But the more I thought about it, if people try and compete with me and they try and copy me, then I'm making the difference because I'm now causing the sector to change the way it does things. And people who are going to benefit are tenants ultimately. So that's making the difference. I can make a difference, but if I can make the difference by being altruistic, it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. That's a really great answer. Thanks, Roy. We'll finish with a segment called Answer the Internet. This is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. And the question that we'll put to you today is from Reddit. Farm student asks, during a typical workday, are lawyers always busy? From my experience, yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, especially criminal lawyers. Uh, and that's why, I, I, you know, I can't help but feel for them with these, with these strikes and so on. They are always busy. And it's not even during a typical workday. It goes beyond that. You know, certainly as a lawyer, as a trial lawyer, you're always working. Always. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, grab my phone, thought of a point, you know, for speech point. You're, you're never, you're never switched off ever. And the moment you've picked up a brief, you're always thinking of an angle. You're always thinking of a question. You're always thinking of a speech point. You're always thinking of a legal argument. During a typical workday, our lawyers always busy, 100%. They don't go on holiday and sit back and, you know, think about their lunch and the sea and the sand. They're thinking about that next question. It's a rewarding life. It's a tough life. It's a tough life because your time is never your time. Your mind is never your own. And I think that's probably one of the biggest benefits that I had when I stepped away full time, you know, because I still can wear the wig and gown, you know, but when I stepped away full time, it was just having that piece. I can come home in the evenings and it's me and the kids as opposed to me, the kids, the brief, you know, quick bites to eat. And then you're back on your, on your, um, at your desk until, you know, 12, one, two, three, four in the morning, five in the morning, may not sleep. That's standard, certainly for a criminal lawyer. That's a really interesting insight. And our next question, uh, we are business leader magazine. So what makes a great business leader to you? Leading by example, number one, right. Um, that's quite obvious. And I'm hopefully I'm going to give you two answers, which you may not have heard before. I think as a business leader, you've got to be true to the philosophy. And certainly from my business, and I think those who are really trying to make a difference, what you're, you're, you're fighting and competing again with the weed stake in the garden, and you're competing, certainly in my case, with acceptance that average is okay. So I am the custodian of excellence, whilst the rest of my guys and girls are trying to do it's okay, because they are looking at everyone else and it's okay. So I am competing with them on a daily basis to make sure that good enough is not good enough, that good enough can be better, better can be best. So that's, I think, a business leader. You are always trying to fight the, the silent negative pull 
and trying to keep everybody aware of the bits they can't see, which is excellent, certainly for my part. Anything less than that won't do. I think as a good business leader, you know, bear in mind, if you've got a team working for you, the easy questions are dealt with. The questions I get to deal with on a daily basis are tough, horrible questions. You know, you don't get the easy questions when you're leading the business. They've already been taken care of. The ones that come to the top are the horrible ones. And then you've got to be courageous. And certainly from my perspective, I'd rather make a bad decision than no decision. I tell my guys to fail often. You're not failing enough because I want to encourage growth and let them try. Because if you don't push, you don't try, right? And if you don't try, you'll never know. I'm quite prepared to make mistakes. It's not a public company. And probably this uh, interview will be uh, played back when it is a public company. They'll be saying they've got to oust me because I'm prepared to take those risks. But unfortunately, that's what gets you to the top, right? Whether you can maintain it with that philosophy, I don't know. And probably I will be replaced at some point. I'm always talking about that um, if we ever go public. But I think you need to be courageous. A good business leader is courageous, for sure. Yeah. And it, and it comes back to that idea of, of failure and, and not being afraid to fail, essentially. So we've come to the end of the podcast. And do you have any final words for our listeners, Rory? Um. I think everybody, you know, as Russ Conwell has said, everyone sort of stands in the middle of their own acre of diamonds, okay? There are so many people who will get involved in business, it starts to get a bit bumpy, a bit tough, and then their head will get turned and see something else and think, oh, do you know what, I'm going to go make money over there, I'm going to go over there and do that. Not realising wherever you are is where the magic is. Wherever you are, stay. If you've already invested time, stay. If it's not working, work out what works. But if you're encountering that adversity, now is the time to stay because it's on the other side of that that the magic happens. Stop looking elsewhere to try and pursue your riches. Stay where you are right now and fight through. And the magic is waiting for you on the other side. 